Amen. Good morning, Castleton. So, so good to be worshiping with you. This is our Father's world. Let's, let us never forget that. I know this is not the week that I had envisioned on my calendar when I had marked this Sunday. This is the last Sunday until we are a self-governing, independent local church. I was anticipating this Sunday and next Sunday being ones of celebration, of time to reflect back on our journey as a church together. And uh, I have to say, I, I'm glad that I'm still able to do some of that, and, and yet there is a, a sense of longing in my heart. I, I really wish, I hope you do too, I wish we were able to gather together and enjoy this moment together. But even as we are unable to do that, the Lord has given us so many reasons to be encouraged. Uh, one of them was a little surprise I found. Um, this morning when I came into church, it turned out some, some little church elves had done some work in our sanctuary. Let's see if we can get a, a look at the sanctuary that uh, I came into my surprise and shock. So many of you have sent in pictures and it turns out in some way or the other you are here present in the sanctuary, at least your faces. And that's a great encouragement to this preacher. So thank you so much for considering your church. Thank you so much for your love for the body of Christ. I need to tell you a little bit about what's been going on in my own heart these last few weeks. Like many of you, I've been watching the news and at times that news is frankly overwhelming. The coronavirus continues to march onward and it's not clear when any of this will end. I got to a, a pretty low point, a point where I was discouraged and I found myself needing to take my own advice, to shut off the news and go back to God's word. I went back to Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, and I found such comfort in the faith in the midst of adversity that I found in the words of this man in the depths of suffering, that he actually found joy and strength in the midst of sorrow. And I thought, you know, for our church, we too, we could use this exhortation from God's word. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend time in Habakkuk. We're going to do so to find, yes, that same sort of comfort I found in th this book. And yet there's something else that I've noticed God is doing amongst us. You know, I haven't been able to go uh, house to house and have meetings in person with people, but I have been able to do quite a bit of phone calling and video conferencing, and, and I've noticed a, a theme emerging, a thread running through the tapestry that is College Park Castleton. It's that as the Lord has us moving through this season of trial and even suffering, he is opening doors into people's hearts in ways he has never done in our history together. Uh, I was overwhelmed at one point this last week. Over a 24-hour period, I heard over a half a dozen examples of a very unlikely scenarios where God gave opportunity for you to bear witness to your faith in Jesus. Different circumstances in each one. A neighbor, a client, a doctor, a prodigal child, and yet in each one of them, you were boldly sharing your hope in Jesus. Now, let me just exhort you as a congregation, as you have opportunity to do that during this season, don't hide that. Share that with your church body. We need to be encouraged together. Share the ways that God is showing his grace to you and the way he's working his grace through you to others. 
But I think the book of Habakkuk is especially helpful for us as we are in this season where the Great Commission is not canceled. Now, in fact, we have an opportunity like never before to reach a group of people more aware than ever that their life is not in their own control. The book of Habakkuk answers one of the first objections that often comes up as you start talking to people about your faith in God. The question of how can you believe in a God that is good? How can you believe in a God that's in control when all of this is happening right now? For these reasons, I want us to turn our attention to this short yet powerful book to find strength in the midst of suffering. Strength that only comes for those who have faith in God. Turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1. Chapter 1, we will read verses 1 through 12 this morning. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Sorry, 1 through 11. And if you're watching this stream and you don't own a Bible... If you would let us know about that, you could shoot us an email or click one of the buttons on the page where you're seeing this stream. We would love to send you one. We have no firmer conviction. If you want to get answers from God, the way to do that is to hear from God himself through his word, through the Bible. Habakkuk chapter 1. And if you're at home, if you pulled out your scripture, why don't you stand with me as I read this. Habakkuk 1 verses 1 through 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Injustice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth, perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's begin with a brief word of prayer. Father, even as you gave this word to Habakkuk so long ago, now, 2,600 years later, we need, we need this word ourselves. Would you meet us in the midst of our questions? Would you grant us, yes, the answers you have revealed? But more than that, Father, would you grant us faith? 
faith even though we don't understand everything. Faith to trust you. And faith to find strength in the midst of our suffering. Would you work this in our hearts this morning, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. I grew up in a pretty boring neighborhood. That is by South Florida standards. When you don't live far from Miami, Florida, where there are regularly all sorts of crazy headlines, uh, when you have a, a neighborhood where no one gets arrested very often, there's no murders, there's no drug deals, you think that's a pretty boring neighborhood. That, that is except for one particular morning. One morning our neighborhood, sleepy as it was, woke up to discover a hole in the living room that was not there the previous night. Now people scratched their heads, wasn't immediately obvious who had caused this damage to this home, how there was suddenly a new doorway into this family's life, if you will. After a little bit of digging, though, it turned out that around the block, there was a car sitting in a closed garage with a smashed up front. With a little more digging, the mystery unfolded. It turned out a very young child in the middle of the night had fished around and found his parents' keys, had managed to get into the car, open the garage, turn on the car, and go out for a joyride without anyone knowing. He had driven around the block, and somewhere along the way, he lost control and went straight into his neighbor's living room. At that point, he had the presence of mind to put the car in reverse, pull back out, go back to his garage, close the garage door, and go back to sleep. It wasn't until his dad got up to go to work that the whole thing unraveled on him. Well, you know, in that situation, that child certainly got a lot of laughs. He got grounded for a long time. And yet you don't hold a child out on a joyride responsible for their actions the way you would an adult, do you? That child... As much as they got a good scolding from their parents, ultimately, they, people understand kids should not be driving cars. Now, sometimes people look at the world and they wonder, is this thing out of control? Is the person behind the wheel, is, is he absent-minded? Is he absent altogether? Is that why things seem like they are out of control? There was a book that came out some years ago called When Bad Things Happen to Good People by a rabbi named Harold Kushner. It wrestled with the question, why is there so much suffering, evil, calamity in this world? A rabbi Kushner, out of deep personal grief, had wrestled with this question, and the conclusion he came to is, well, God certainly can't be to blame. God certainly can't be to blame because... God's really not into, in control. This is what he said. He said, I no longer hold God responsible for illnesses, accidents, and natural disasters because I realize that I gain little and I lose so much when I blame God for those things. This is a man de de wrestling with these big eternal questions. This question of, is God in control of this world with all these things going wrong? And he came to the conclusion, no, he can't be in control. Now, how different is that from the way Christians have thought of this world and the God revealed to us by the Bible? We just sang this song confessing that this is our Father's world. 
that, oh, though the wrong off seems so wrong, the, the, God is the ruler yet. We, we believe in a sovereign God who is in control. There's a gulf between those two things. A God who is absent and powerless and a God who is totally in control, even bringing all things to pass for his purpose. Well, the book of Habakkuk helps us to bridge that gulf, to go from thinking that God must not care or must be absent to understanding God is both in control and most of all that God cares about us and he cares about what happens in this world. The book of Habakkuk was written about 2,600 years ago to a prophet by the name Habakkuk. We don't know much about him except that he was someone that was a spokesman for God and that he was virtuous. He had an incredible faith. As we work through this book, we're going to find much to commend about Habakkuk's character. We also know that Habakkuk was a man that wrestled with deep questions. He has deep pain, even anguish at his circumstances, and he brings those pains to God and even has the incredible backbone to question God. The book itself is really built around the first two chapters, a back and forth between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk, as you will, gets to ask God questions and then receive answers back from God. He asks two questions and he receives two answers in those first two chapters. And that's what we'll mainly be looking at this morning. Then in chapter three, Habakkuk, after he has learned something of the God that he serves, Habakkuk has a a hymn of worship, a worship for God's sovereignty and his goodness. And next week we'll look at that as we wrestle with who God is and how we can even find joy and strength in our suffering. But this morning we're going to look at that Q&A that Habakkuk has with God. And as so we do, we're going to discover something about the questions that all of us must wrestle with sooner or later unavoidable questions that suffering raises and the answers that God provides for us and how he intends to respond to those answers in faith. We'll see that in three sections this morning. We're going to skip through the passage a little more than usual because of its length. First, we're going to look at the unavoidable questions that suffering brings. The unavoidable questions that suffering brings. We'll see that in chapter 1. Verses two through four. Second, we'll see the unsatisfying answers that we receive about suffering. The unsatisfying answers we receive about suffering. We'll see that in God's responses to Habakkuk. One five all the way through the end of chapter two. And then finally, we'll see what God wants from us. We'll come to an understanding of faith in suffering, an understanding of faith in suffering. We'll see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's begin in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, with the unavoidable questioning, unavoidable questions that suffering brings. In verses 2 through 4, it is obvious Habakkuk is a man in distress. Look at some of the language he uses there. Verse 2, how long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? 
Habakkuk is honest, even raw in his emotion toward God. There, there's something clearly, obviously wrong for this prophet. Well, what is it? Well, we see there in verses 3 and 4 what it is. It's that injustice is going unpunished. Look at verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk very likely lived during the reign of King Josiah. That was a time of some revival in Judah. And yet, even as God's people in a way they had not done in a long, long time, turned their hearts back to the God they served. There still was grave evil and injustice among them. There was violence. There was worship of idols. And apparently it was getting so bad in the time that Habakkuk had this encounter with God that Habakkuk was beginning to lose hope. It seemed like the bad guys were winning and the good guys were losing. It it seemed like the scales of justice were so imbalanced that it actually threw God's character into question. Now, before we can really feel the weight of how it is Habakkuk gets here, we have to realize that Habakkuk has a number of assumptions that many of us today don't have. If you're tuning in this morning and you're not regularly someone that reads the Bible or uh, joins Christians together in church, it may be that some of the things that Habakkuk assumes about the world and about God might seem very foreign to you. So let me just give you three quick assumptions that Habakkuk has as informed by the scriptures he had at that time and the things God had revealed to his people. First, Habakkuk assumed that God is our creator, that God made us, And that means we owe him, that the creator has rights over his creation and that all of us as created beings owe allegiance and honor to our creator. That's the first assumption Habakkuk made. The second is that God cares. God cares that the way humans live is something that God not only pays attention to, but that God even responds to that he punishes evil, that he rewards good, that he works in such a way to bring blessing to certain people and to bring judgment on others. Third, Habakkuk assumes that God is in control, that God is in control, that the creator of the whole world is also the king of the whole world, that nations rise and nations fall, that people find great fortune and and people find their fortunes dashed all because of the God he serves. His strength is unmatched and no one can thwart his purposes in the world. You see, with these three assumptions, you can start to feel why Habakkuk has this sort of anguish in his heart. If God made us, If God cares about us and if God is in control over the world we live in and everything that happens, then why is so much going wrong? Why are people violent? 
Why are people stealing? Why do they worship other gods? Why are there calamities in nature? Why is it that the world feels like it's out of control if all these things are true? Now, it's been a long time since Habakkuk had that question that he put to God, and yet recognize that we ask that same question to God again and again, don't we? I sat in the office of a businessman with tears in his eyes as he knew that the business he had labored so long and hard for had been totally destroyed by a circumstance outside of his control. And he sat in the chair just a foot in front of me and he asked me, Pastor, where is God in this? I remember sitting with a mother, a mother that had lost her son who had watched as a son that she reared, changed diapers for, and shuttled to and from school, suddenly in one evening was ripped from her life. And in her anguish, she asked me, what is God doing, pastor? Realize that we have the same questions as, as Habakkuk did. Even if our circumstances, like the pandemic of coronavirus, are very different than his. So that begs the question, where should we look for answers? Well, let's learn from Habakkuk's example, friends. We have to see not only the unavoidable questions that suffering brings, we also have to look at, yes, the unsatisfying answers that we are provided. Look with me in verse 5. God amazingly gives Habakkuk an answer. Verse 5, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. God tells Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I am not going to answer your question on your terms. I am not going to tell you what I'm doing. Because if I did, Habakkuk, you wouldn't believe me. If I told you my plan in its fullness, your mind would be blown. Habakkuk, you cannot, you cannot see down the pathways that I have laid out. Habakkuk, your mind cannot even imagine things big enough to grasp my plan. Habakkuk, you cannot possibly understand what it is I am doing. And then God does something rather odd. In verses 6 through 11, he goes on to give Habakkuk a little window into what he's doing. Now, it's important to notice, this is not God telling Habakkuk everything he is doing. That's going to become clear as we move through this. God gives Habakkuk a partial answer. And yet, even as he does so, he makes sure to humble this prophet. He makes sure to tell him, Habakkuk, there are going to be some things you just won't understand. Now, verse 5, before we move on, First five is one of those examples in scripture of why you should be very careful not to take a verse out of context. I've seen many t-shirts with Habakkuk 1.5 printed on them. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. I've heard sermons preached on that verse to the effect of God is about to do something so amazing there will be blessings and prosperity that you could not possibly imagine. You've got to dream bigger, friend. I've seen it plastered on, on uh, coffee mugs. I've seen it crocheted in pillows. And yet, 
if you just keep reading, you'll understand what this astounding thing God is doing is, and it's not something you probably want God doing for you. Verse six, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. What is the amazing, astounding, mind-blowing thing God is doing? Well, one part of it is God is going to raise up the Babylonians to come and conquer his people. He's going to take the big, baddest, most pagan nation on the block and, and bring them to sweep over them like wind that knocks over a forest. In short, God is going to bring judgment on Habakkuk and all the people of his nation. In poetic terms, verses 6 through 11 describe what that will be like. I love the descriptions of their army. Their, their horses are swifter than leopards. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They're, they're bestial. They're, they're otherworldly. But it, God makes clear in verse 11, they are evil. They sweep by like the, like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now on the world scene with the hindsight of history, we know what happened. If you were with us when we were studying Jonah, during Jonah's day, the Assyrians were the big, bad pagan nation on the block. Nineveh was one of the most, uh, one of the hubs of their violence and power. But by the time we get to Habakkuk's day, things have changed dramatically. Now Assyria is on the decline and a new empire is on the rise, the empire of Babylon, the Chaldeans. They would end up knocking Assyria off of their pedestal and claiming it for their own. And just as Assyria came and took the northern Israel tribes off into exile, Babylon would do the same to the southern tribe of Judah. Here God is pulling back his veil of uh, providence uh, just enough for Habakkuk to get a peek. And what Habakkuk sees coming is war, pillage, violence, murder, death, and deprivation. He sees suffering coming that will outweigh all the injustice in his day and some. And frankly, Habakkuk can't imagine how that could be God's plan. You see that response in Habakkuk's second question to God. That's in verses 12 through 17. Habakkuk essentially tells God exactly what God predicted would happen. He says, God, I can't believe you would do that. And then he explains why. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, has established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow, swallow up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk's second complaint to God is, God, wait, 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 wait a second. How can you take a nation that's worse than we are and use this more evil nation to come and punish us for our evil? 
That just doesn't seem to make sense. God, aren't you holy? Aren't your eyes too pure to even look on sin? How is it that you could possibly do this, God? Habakkuk thinks this will go on forever. There's this image of this ongoing action of a fisherman pulling up fish. Only in this case, they are people. People being pulled up for the slaughter. Habakkuk says, how can you do this, God? And in chapter 2, verse 1, we see Habakkuk realizes only God can answer this question. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning, concerning my complaint. Habakkuk realized that God's plan didn't make sense by his standards, and so he asked God yet again. And God answers again. Now, we don't have time to look at this section in full, but from 2-2 all the way to the end of chapter 2, God answers Habakkuk. And he tells him, yes, Habakkuk, this is what, what's going to happen, but don't worry. After this evil pagan nation comes and conquers you, I'm going to turn around and conquer them. There's a series of woes that are pronounced against the Babylonians, five of them in total. I'll just read for you the first one in verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And he loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. God tells Habakkuk, yes, Habakkuk, you're right. The Babylonians are evil and what they are doing deserves punishment. And after they are done being my instrument to punish you, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to punish them. Justice will be done. There will be no account left unsettled when I am finished, Habakkuk. All the ledgers will be reconciled. So you don't need to worry. I've got this under control. Now, friends, you have to realize, I don't think that this would be all that great a comfort to Habakkuk. Because he, like so many of us, bring assumptions to our conversations with God when we question him. We assume we ourselves aren't that bad, that our sins aren't in need of that much correction. We assume that God owes us comfort. And we assume even more than that, more often than not, we assume God owes us that comfort right now. And yet, in a sense, God does give Habakkuk a perfectly valid, logical response, a perfectly good answer to his question. God is not being unjust. No, he is going to work for his own glory by punishing evildoers, perfectly in line with his character. And even in the midst of this, God gives Habakkuk a little glimpse that this will be for the good, of not just for Judah, but for the whole world. Chapter 2, verse 14 for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. However mysterious God's workings are, however confounding they may be to our conscience, 
at the end of the day, God tells Habakkuk, the result will be so much glory washing across the world that the whole world will be covered with it like a flood washing over the face of the earth. There was a poet by the name of William Cooper who suffered greatly in his own life. He dealt with both physical and emotional and spiritual depression of different sorts. And yet in the midst of his suffering, it's amazing, he wrote some of the most profound, true words about how a Christian can find hope in God. In one of his most famous hymns, God Works in Mysterious Ways, he wrote these lines. He said, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You see, friend, you come to God with your question, and you should. Come to God with your question of what is he doing in the world right now? And at the very least, God's answer to you will be, you're going to have to trust me. You wouldn't understand what I'm doing even if I told you the breath of it because I work in such a way and I work at such high of a level that your mind and your heart cannot fully grasp what it is I am doing. Now, maybe you're tuning in this morning and you don't know or would not call yourself a Christian. I wonder if you've ever thought of this question, what happens after you die? What will God use to measure your life? If he really is your creator, if he really cares, if he's really in control, there has to be some sort of measuring stick he will use when you meet him one day, friend. What will that be? Have you ever thought about what the Bible says about judgment? That God works all things together for his own glory, and that includes punishing those who live in ways rebellious against him, the king of us all? Friend, maybe you haven't spent much time thinking about the fact that you will one day die. But right now, it's impossible to ignore that reality, isn't it? With the coronavirus sweeping through our community, none of us knows what tomorrow brings. And, and maybe for the first time, you're wrestling with the biggest questions of all. What comes next after I die? Friend, if that's you this morning, please understand why we Christians find so much hope even in the midst of suffering. It's because we believe that the God that will one day judge us has worked in a mysterious way to make it so that we cannot be his enemies anymore, but actually to be his friends. We call that the good news of the gospel. That God, in a mystery that no one saw coming, sent his own son into this world. That that son, who, though he was perfectly sinless in his own life, he gave his life up as a sacrifice, absorbing the very punishment that all of us deserve. That you can know today that if you were to die when you met God, he would not be angry with you. If you would just throw yourself at the feet of Jesus 
if you just ask him to forgive you of your sins, that you would find all the forgiveness, all the grace, everything you could possibly need. Now, if you don't know how to do that, I encourage you, find a Christian friend that you can have a phone call with this week. Or if you don't have a Christian friend you can talk to, push one of the buttons on that landing page where we are streaming this from. I would love to have a phone call with you myself. Now, I recognize that just saying that we won't understand what God is doing is unsatisfying. But that's kind of the point. God does not owe us answers. And even though so often we want to know every detail, we are only responsible for the things God has revealed to us. And that brings us to the third and final point this morning. We have to have an understanding of the faith to be found in suffering, an understanding of the faith to be found in suffering. I want to briefly turn your attention to that section in between Habakkuk's second question and God's second answer. God reveals to Habakkuk what it is he wants from us when we have all our confusion and our questions. And what he wants from us, friends, is humility and trust. Look in verse 3. God reveals something to Habakkuk. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God reveals something. And in revealing already, Habakkuk is humbled. Because when God reveals, it implies we don't know something. We need God to show it to us. What is it that we're called to? Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There's a contrast that God puts before Habakkuk. Two ways you can respond to this suffering and what I am telling you. Either you can be like that pagan evil nation. You can be prideful and assume you know everything, that you are your own master. At which case, when suffering comes, it will be your undoing. Or, or you can trust God. And strangely, in the midst of your suffering, you can find strength. The word used there is faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. That the way you will endure the pain that is coming and stay faithful, the way you will do that is by trusting me. You see, friends, God does not require of us to have perfect knowledge. He doesn't require for us to understand everything that he does. No, he just requires for us to trust him enough that when he shows us something, that we take it to the bank. As Christians, we have to have the sort of attitude that we could say, while I may not understand everything God's doing, this much I can do. I can trust him. Trust him that he's good, Trust him that he has reasons far beyond what I could possibly imagine and that he has given me everything I need to be faithful in this moment. Pastor John Piper had a, a tweet that went out this week. He said, at any point in your life, God is doing 100,000 different things. And if you're lucky, you're aware of two of them. I think that's right. And I think the longer you let this truth 
soak into your heart. The more, when suffering comes, instead of being undone by it, you will find a strange sort of strength. Your trust in God will become your salvation. This week I heard a whole slew of testimonies and it was so encouraging for me to know that our God is working amongst us in the midst of this, the most unlikely of circumstances. No one saw this coming. And yet God knew this was coming and in fact he brought it to pass so that we would bear fruit in this season. Keep on pressing forward knowing the great commission is not canceled. Now's the time to be bold in your witness for Jesus. But I also was reflecting on the ways I have seen our congregation respond to suffering and how I've seen this remarkable faith come to the surface. I've seen you lose loved ones. I've seen you lose jobs. I've seen you in the midst of depression and darkness that people could not possibly understand. I've seen you lonely. I've seen you discouraged. And again and again, I have seen you turn your attention to the God who is in control and the God who cares. And though you may not understand what he's doing at that moment, friends, I have seen you trust him through the hardest of all things. Why? Because you know his love and care for you is measured by only one thing by the cross of Calvary. So brothers and sisters, next week may be another hard week. I don't know what it holds. No one does. Except the one who orders every one of our days. He has not asked us to know everything. He has not asked us to understand the fullness of his mysterious plan. He has just asked us to trust him and in the midst of our suffering, to find a strange sort of strength. Maybe this morning you needed to be reminded of this, that our God is sovereign over us. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You are faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Brothers and sisters, this week, as God opens windows into people's lives, would you move forward knowing that none of this is by accident? You are precisely where he wants you to be, his witnesses, and to find your faith to be your source of strength. He is sovereign over us. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, help us, we who have little faith, we who struggle to trust you. When the phone rings and there's yet another bit of bad news, when the news breaks and the numbers of the pandemic only get larger, when the days seem to stretch on and on and we feel more lonely than ever, would you help us not to understand everything you're doing, but to trust you and in our trusting, in our faith, to find a strange sort of strength.
Jesus, would you even do that now as we respond to your word by singing? Would you use music to get down into the parts of our hearts that words otherwise cannot? Would you remind us you are in control, that you care, you are our creator, and we have every reason to worship you this morning. Help us to do this now by the power of your spirit, we pray in your name, amen.